You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Hey guys, today we're going to be talking with Bobby, a.k.a. Millennial Money Man, who paid off $40,000 in student loan debt in a year and a half on a teacher's salary. Then he made the choice to actually quit his job and run his blog, MillennialMoneyMan.com, full-time. With over 150,000 readers, he teaches people how to attack debt, make more money, and create an awesome life you can get excited about. Today we're going to be exploring his story. We're going to talk about K-12 through and what they really ought to be teaching kids in schools, and a little bit about the business asset class. So I am excited to get this conversation started today. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? I am doing quite well, Jonathan. Yeah, this should be a really interesting interview with Bobby. He's got so many cool little angles on his story from paying off student loan debt to being a teacher and trying to introduce personal finance into his classroom to starting a side hustle, right? And really building out his own business asset, as Todd Tresseter talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he just last month made over $16,000 from his website. So that's a pretty successful side hustle as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. With that, Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey guys. Hey, thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. I've been excited about this one for a while because I think a lot of my readers are actually big fans of your podcast. So it's a, it's a cool kind of crossover. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about this too. And one of the things to me that was so interesting about your story is that my understanding from reading some of your writing is that when you left your job, your site was not making anything. Am I right about that? (laughs) That is 100% true. Yeah. When I left my job, I had only been blogging for about six months. The site had brought in a cool $3 in Google ad revenue, but I was just, I was so passionate about it at the time. And and I was, I had this feeling that I could make it work somehow. (laughs) And so I just, I took that leap of faith, but I never recommend that other people do that. <laughs> yeah, <a> disclaimer. Well, <laughs> don't give up your only source of income. That, that sounds like no, a, no, no, just no. A, a great runway there, but yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I mean, it would be really cool. Maybe we could just take a few minutes and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your backstory. What were you doing before you decided to pursue this entrepreneurial laptop lifestyle? It really all started after college for me. I graduated, I had a music education degree. I had through high school and, you know, obviously through college, I, I really, really felt like I wanted to be a high school band director. I was good at music. I started in, in sixth grade. I went through that process. I got the degree and I got a job here in, in Texas. And I went water skiing actually with my wife and a family friend of hers that was a, uh, he's an older guy. Uh, his name's Mike. And he owned a pool company for a really long time, but he was, he was successful. He was a multimillionaire. He asked me, he was on his boat and uh, he asked me while we were out there water skiing. He's like, Hey, so what are you going to do about your student loans? I didn't have an answer because I was 23. I didn't know anything about personal finance or money. Like I was not interested in this world at all. And he basically was like, Hey, here's what you're going to do if you want to be successful. And he told me to keep my living expenses as low as possible, throw everything that I possibly could at the loans. And so back then I was impressionable and and still young enough to where I I listened to him without really thinking about it too much. And I did it. And so I paid off the $40,000 
of student loan debt that I had in a year and a half and did it through a, a lot of different strategies. But my wife and I, the, probably one of the biggest ones, we decided to rent a room from her parents, which was a, <laughs> which was kind of an interesting, we had this little 10 by 10 bedroom and looking back on it, it was like this terrible uh, living experience because nobody wants to live with their in-laws like that. But we did it for a while and I drove this little crappy car with like roll up windows and I never, I never let my lifestyle inflate after I started getting paychecks from, from teaching. And so I just threw everything I could at those loans. After that, I got really, really excited about personal finance because I realized that nobody around me, none of my colleagues or my friends or anything, they never talked about money. And so I was like, you know, I want to start kind of talking about money. So I went over to medium.com and I, I wrote this, I don't, I don't even know, it wasn't really a blog post. I just wrote this thing that was kind of just like a, almost a thesis statement on like what I thought millennials should do with their money. And I shared it on Facebook with my friends and it kind of went mini viral. And I realized that like, Hey, I might be kind of good at this. And so I started millennial money, man, and just started blogging, kind of trying to figure that out. And then at the same time, we had these advisory lessons while I was, I was teaching every day. The principal would send us these ridiculous advisory lessons. They were like English lessons or like math, but it was really stupid curriculum and the kids hated it. And so I was like, well, why don't I just start talking to them about money? And so I turned those advisory classes. I was not supposed to do this, but I turned the advisory classes into these, these money lessons where we talked about just very simple, you know, how does interest work and how do you, uh, how do you read a credit report? And the kids, they loved it. Like they were so into it. They, it was like all they talked about, like, oh, we got to do Mr. Hoyt's money lesson. And so I had been blogging for about six months and I had like a little bit of traction with Millennium Money Man. You know, I just decided one day that I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this full time. And I walked in and I quit. Then <laughs> that was kind of how it all started. Now it's, now it's a couple years later and it's gotten a lot bigger, but that was the, the initial, I guess, story behind all of it. Wow, Bobby, that's incredible. I probably jotted down about 10 different questions just in the couple of minutes you were talking there. So I want to go back to the beginning of this story, if you don't mind. So you're on this boat, right? You meet this guy and you have this inflection point in your life. I mean, do you, have you ever thought about like what you would have done with your student loans had you not met this gentleman? I think he said his name is Mike. What would have happened? Like, what did you know about money beforehand? How did you educate yourself on money after that conversation? to eventually go and write this thesis statement, as you said, on, on this website and then create Millennial Money Man. Like, talk us through the thought process there. Sure. Well, I mean, as far as what I knew about money, it was zero. I had never been interested in money. And I think a lot of, like a lot of teachers make that choice because you know you're not going to make a lot of money. So you just kind of go like, yeah, you know, whatever happens, happens. And so, uh, yeah, I was not interested in personal finance. The reason that that came up in the, uh, in the ski boat while we were out there the lake that we go water skiing on has all these like beautiful mansions. <laughs> and, uh, I said something to my wife, like, it's like, yeah, we need, we're going to live in one of those one day. And my friend Mike like looked over and he was like, you're a teacher. You've got $40,000 student loan debt. That's probably not going to happen unless you do something different. And I was like, Oh, that's a good, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> the natural conclusion of the story does not end with one of these million dollar homes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so after that, Mike and I, Mike was my wife's father's best friend. He just kind of took me under his wing and I'd go and, and hang out at his pool shop. And he was kind of in the process of tearing down his business in a way, like just, he was shutting things down very slowly. And he decided that he wanted, he saw that I had kind of like an entrepreneurial uh, spirit, but probably didn't know it yet. And he just, he started teaching me everything he could about, about personal finance. He's a, 
a really seasoned investor and he had obviously built a very successful business too. And so, I mean, he would literally, we'd go up there and drink a couple beers and like, he'd pull out his P and L statements and he'd pull out like, he'd pull up his accounting program and be like, this is how you do accounting. And he'd pull out his stock accounts, his brokerage accounts and, and walk me through everything and let me see all the numbers. So looking back on it, it's pretty fascinating that he did that. And he's a, he's a great friend of mine now. And we have like a 40 year age gap almost, but he just, he mentored me through that whole process. And that was, that was how I learned about personal finance and how I got interested. And then obviously, you know, now I'm immersed in this kind of weird culture that we have. So, um, I, that's how I, I learned about things now, but that was, that was how it started. What struck me was this one point in time and you could see it where the light bulb really went off for you in this kind of, wow, if I can do this, I can do anything mentality. It was the paying off the $40,000 of student loan debt. And you can almost see this as this inflection point in your life, this natural springboard where just making that single decision was the catalyst. And you said, wow, if I can do this, you know what? Now I have something to add to the conversation. This is something that now I'm not just talking about it in theory, but this is practically how I applied this. And I added this new level to my life. And from here, I'm just going to go and I'm going to you know, create something that hasn't existed before and add value back to the world. The reason I say that is it was paying off my student loans for me or even just being willing to attempt paying off my student loans aggressively that empowered me to feel like I could share my story as well. Yeah, I think that's important. And I did not pay off the student loans like with the thought process that I was going to you know, go out and, and try to reach a lot of people. It was really just I was doing it because this guy that was wealthy told me it was a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'll go ahead and do that. And then through that process, I, I realized how passionate I was about it. As you have that light bulb moment and you're looking at paying off loans rapidly or, or, or whatever, I mean, you look around and you realize how everybody around you in your life doesn't think about personal finance ever. Like they, it's something that they're like scared of. And so that was the reason that I was like, okay, well, maybe I, I can start writing about this. I'm a teacher anyway, so I might as well try to teach some people how I did it. That was really the thought process behind it after I paid off my loans. Bobby, have you made an impact on friends like in your actual real life? You know, as far obviously you reach hundreds of thousands of people through your site, but do you have these conversations about money with people in your age group who have student loans and don't know how to get out from under them? Or like, does that ever come up in real life? It does. I, you know, I have made an impact on people, maybe not in the way that I wanted to. And I'll, I'll explain that in a second, but I have kind of a rule now where I, I really try not to talk about money with friends and family because I've realized that, um, more often than not, it causes problems because I think as much as people ask me like, Hey, what, what do you think about student loans? When you start getting into the nitty gritty, like, well, what are you spending on this? And what are you spending on this? There's always an immediate kind of retraction from them. It's like they stepped in the pool and they're like, Oh, the water's too cold. I don't want to do that. And so <laughs> you know, it's like, and so that's something that I realized over the past three years because I wanted to help all of my friends. And I've just learned that unless they really come to you and they're really serious about it, that I just, I try not to talk about, about personal finance with them. And I hate that. And, but that's something that I think I would imagine a lot of personal finance influencers go through that because money is such a weird taboo thing in our society you know, people want answers, but then they don't want, they don't like what you tell them <laughs> when it's like, okay, well you've got to sell your car and you've got to drive a piece of crap and you got to get rid of cable and you got to do this, this, and this. And they're, they're like, oh wait, that's not as cool. That didn't sound as cool as what, <laughs> is what I thought it would sound like. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen the same thing over and over again. I feel like Brad has done a better job with this, just generally speaking. And maybe there's a level of strategy, Brad, that you can speak to at a different time. But for me, I'm finding the exact same thing. People step in the pool and decide, you know, that's a little too cool. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and step out. 
Well, and I mentioned that I would tell you how I have affected people. Usually a lot of my friends actually do go to my website, but they never really talk to me about it except for when I see them do things. So like a long time ago, I had a post on the site about this couple that was living in an RV. They had bought this little camper and moved it out onto some land to pay off their student loans. And so like in theory, that sounds really cool. And I had two really close friends without talking to me about it at all. A couple months later, they went out and bought RVs and they went out <laughs> to live in, in, and do the RV life thing. And, you know, kind of quickly found out that it's not, it's not quite as easy to do that and pay off a bunch of student loan debt. So I've had things like that happen where they see something through the site and they don't want to talk to me about it. And then they go do it. And then they find out that it maybe wasn't exactly what they thought, but I just, yeah, friends typically don't want to talk about it with me that much. Uh, I've found. Well, you published this on your site. And so I thought this would maybe be a natural transition. Your site really has blown up and it's become more than you could have ever hoped for <laughs> at least, you know, comparable to what your traditional path looked like before. So you wrote this article and it's, I make $200,000 a year and dress like a scrub. And I think it goes to this idea. I think what you were getting across was this idea of living your wage. I'd love to hear you talk to us about that article. Yeah, I wrote that article. <laughs> I think I wrote it in a coffee shop and it was, that was really kind of inspired by, there's this coffee shop that I go to and I write at quite a bit. The guys there, like they call me the blogger guy. Like I just don't typically dress very fancy and I drive a really old car. Both of our cars are 2004 they're not in the best shape right now. I wanted to kind of detail, yes, I make way more money than I used to. And my life, kind of the life liquidity that I have, like I have a lot of freedom in life to do a lot of cool things now. That's changed, but I haven't changed who I am. I'm not a flashy dresser. I'm not, I don't need a cool car. I don't need all that stuff. And I think part of the reason that I wrote that article is to show people like, just because you make more money, you don't have to act differently. You're, you're pretty much going to be who you were in most cases. But if you're like, if you're poor and you're flashy, then when you're rich, you're going to be flashy, but you're probably going to be like living paycheck to paycheck. So it's just, it's, that was kind of the thought process behind that article. Yeah, that's interesting. I've found that people, even if they make a decent salary, like if you look rich, quote unquote, look rich by having the McMansion and the Mercedes, like there's just not enough money to go around. Like those people don't generally have a significant net worth, right? They're the ones who are living paycheck to paycheck. Whereas as Jonathan calls it, the dirtbag millionaire, right? Like wearing flip-flops and looking like a college student. You know, they they thought you were a college kid as opposed yeah, to yeah. somebody who's a successful blogger at almost 30 years old. Like that's the stealth <laughs> wealth community, you know? And uh, I, 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 loved, I loved your little thing here with the look people have when you tell them you're a full-time blogger, which oh, uh, is yeah. this random, like, what the heck is that? Like, do you make money doing that? The guy asked you. <laughs> I get that question all the time and I'm, I'm still not at a point where I'm like, I don't know a good answer for that because there's blogging in itself. Like it sounds very simple, but there's so many different components to it and moving parts. But yeah, I mean, I, I get that question all the time. Like, do you actually make money? And I think also for me, like the point of that article wasn't to, to tell people that I just dress like a scrub for no reason. It's just, that's just how I've always been, you know, like I, I've just, I've never, I've never been into clothes and stuff like that. And actually, after I wrote the article, my wife, she read it and she didn't realize that all of my socks had like holes in them and all of my underwear had holes in them and stuff. And she made me go out and buy uh, new stuff <laughs> after that article. <laughs> what I loved about that and what I, the continuity I see is that so many people are trying to fake a lifestyle right? We want to be rich. So everything we own needs to project that. And what we see in the Phi community, and it sounds like something that you exhibit, this character trait that you exhibit as well, is you just don't feel that compulsion. In fact, 
you would you, you almost hold it at arm's length and so your your car doesn't advertise your net worth your clothing doesn't advertise your net worth when i met brad the first 5 times i saw him he was only wearing t-shirts that he had gotten from fincon over the last 6 <laughs> years like that was that was it that was his full standard attire and you don't project this expensive lifestyle, which means that you don't need to support that image year round, which means that you then have more to more money, I guess, left over to invest in these other in these other aspects of your life, uh, which just makes sense. But it's also cool. And it tells me that I found my tribe. Right. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, too, is a lot of people read that article. And I think that was actually the most popular article that I wrote this year. And I totally didn't mean for that to happen. It just for whatever reason, I guess the right picture and the right um, you know, the, the right story, but we do have expensive hobbies. They live. My wife and I go boating. We have a boat. We have a, we have a nice wakeboarding boat. Our house, we just bought a house and it's, it's a pretty nice house, but we're not really like putting that in people's face all the time. Like we have a nice boat and we have a nice house. We do drive old cars and like my wife even doesn't shop very much. So it's just an interesting thing. You kind of, even when you start to get more money, you tend to put into the things that you care about and just clothes and cars were just, you know, something I just don't really care about very much. Bobby, I love that. And it speaks directly to my own personality, which a phrase that we coined here was called valuist. And that's what I call myself, which is I'm not cheap. I'm not frugal. I'm a valuist. And that means I'll, I'll spend a lot of money on certain items if it's what I place value on. Whereas cars, I get no value out of. We have two 2003 cars. Ooh. So we're just right there with you. <laughs> Same as Jonathan said, I wear free clothes that I got from FinCon. Like, I don't care about that stuff at all. But if there's something that I do place value on, I'll buy it in a heartbeat. And it sounds similar to you with your, you know, my wife and I own a pretty sweet wakeboarding boat. We go on vacations. We're in the yeah. process of building a cool house. Like those are the things that are important to you. And that's what's important to get across here to the audience is this is not about deprivation. It's not about, oh, let me wear socks with holes in it just to be cheap and not spend any money. It's no. Bobby places value on some things that he goes out and spends a good bit of money on, like a wakeboarding boat. You know, How many people in the personal finance community have a wakeboarding boat? Probably not very many, not but many, you do no. because you place value <laughs> on it, right? Like That's cool as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there's so much in the, in the blogging community and, and I'm sure in the podcasting community, there are a lot of these messages of like, don't spend any money <laughs> or like minimalism is really big right now and all those things. And I'm not that way at all. I feel like I'm just a very normal person, but I don't care what Joe Schmo at some coffee shop thinks about me. You know, I want to create a life for myself and my wife and, and our future kids that is really cool. Like, I don't care if somebody thinks I have a cool life. So that's it's been a, a kind of an interesting study. Uh, to see the responses to that article. One of the places that I thought would make this particular conversation so interesting is if we could actually leverage your experience as a teacher and as a band director and take a few minutes and talk about if you were back in that position, knowing everything that you know now about money, what points, what thoughts or ideas would you absolutely want to communicate to kids? What would you actually want to teach kids about money? Well, I think <laughs> first I would try to really impress upon them the student loan thing is so bad right now. And I mean, my site is, is really focused towards people with student loans because obviously that was my story. And, you know, I still get emails all the time that are heartbreaking about people that they went out and got degrees and like maybe they had, you know, $180,000 of debt, but they didn't get a degree that, that allows them to pay that back. I would talk to kids a lot more about, you know, do you actually need to go to college? And it's a weird thing because when I was, when I was teaching, you know, you'd walk through the sixth grade campus and they had these little flags everywhere that was like each hall was like 
you know, Texas A&M hallway and like Texas Christian University hallway. Like they, they push school districts, I think kind of, I don't want to say mistakenly push, but it almost is a mistake in my opinion. They push the narrative that you have to go to college from such an early age. They're indoctrinating these kids into thinking that the only way that they can have success in life is a degree. And I think it's well-intentioned, but I think it's also dangerous because we're seeing this ballooning student loan debt and these people that are really struggling. And everybody, you know, wants to blame the kids for taking out the degree. But what I saw all the time was that, you know, 16-year-olds were making decisions about the rest of their life based on what high schools and, and junior highs had told them was the path to success. And so that would be my first thing is like, you don't have to go to college. <laughs> you don't have to go live in the nice dorm. Like if you do want to go to college, go to junior college first, live at home, whatever. And when I tried to talk to kids about that, there was a lot of pushback because that was so much, so radically different from everything they had ever heard. Yeah, I see that as well. And it's something that you're threading that needle and it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with college or that college isn't necessarily an amazing idea for somebody, but rather taking out $100,000 in student loan debt to pursue a degree that may or may not have a job waiting for you on the other side is probably a bad deal. Right. And it is. And it's unfortunate because it's like you have a lot of teachers and I'm not bashing on teachers because I was a teacher that had student loan debt. You have a lot of teachers that have a lot of debt, have a lot of student loans telling kids to go do the same thing because they think that's what they're supposed to be telling kids. And I think, you know, you can make way more money as a welder <laughs> um, than a lot of people think. Or you can make a lot more money as a plumber. Um, and, and honestly, I, you know, I think we're going to need more of those jobs as the people that have them right now are retiring. And I can't, I can't cite the exact st- uh, statistic, but I know in Houston, there's a big problem with uh, trade work not being filled with new people because it's just, you know, schools haven't pushed that. And I think that that's unfortunate. Bobby, knowing what you know about the educational system and being on the ground for it and also thinking that not everybody should go to college, which I agree with as well. It's it's this societal thing that we've kind of pushed down kids' throats. At what point along the way would you teach kids that there are other options? There are these welder jobs and electricians and all sorts of other jobs that don't require a college degree but are absolutely necessary and, frankly, people can make a lot of money with. Like, At what point would you change change that emphasis? Honestly, I do it probably around sixth or seventh grade. What I saw, um, and this isn't probably based on any, any science. This is just from, you know, being in the classroom with kids. What I saw was that, you know, around sixth, seventh, eighth grade kids really form a lot of their views of the world. And, uh, they, they're very intuitive. Like they, a lot of people think like, Oh, dumb junior high kids, but they're, they're really intuitive and they actually pick up a lot during that age. And I think that, that's probably when a lot of the you have to go to college to be successful sets in. You know, I had students that were already talking to me about, you know, it's like, hey, what do you want to do in life? They're like, I want to go to to University of Texas. You know, like they because their parents either did it or whatever. And it, that gets really strongly indoctrinated on them at that point. And then once they get older, it's harder. You know, as kids get older, it's harder to kind of change their mind about things. So I'd start, you know, easily sixth grade, probably not fifth grade because they're not quite. I don't think they're quite developed from like a mental standpoint to understand what you're trying to tell them. But once they get into the junior high range, for sure. Yeah, that's great. And and where does the interplay come in with personal finance education? Because, you know, you talked about these advisory courses that you kind of hijacked, right, to, uh, to teach uh, personal finance stuff. And I think that is a crucial bit of education that that people are just not getting. I'd love to hear where you think that should be involved and how you'd go about teaching it, if that's something you could explain to the audience. Sure. Yeah. I think I wouldn't talk about personal finance in junior high because I think 
what I found is like kids at that age, they don't really have a concept of money. Like they have a concept of like all these things they want to do in their life, but they've never made money before. I mean, in most cases, uh, and they don't understand how, how that whole system works. But when they get into junior high, a lot more of them have to start either getting a job or they're around money because their parents start giving them money to spend on things. And so I think that ninth, 10th grade would be, would be fine to start teaching kids about personal finance. And I would just keep it really stupidly simple, you know, because I mean, we both know, like, or we all know that, you know, personal finance really isn't that complicated. (laughs) A lot of times it's like kindergarten numbers. And so I would just stick to just easy things like what's an asset, what's a liability. Like you don't have to get into like compounding interest or anything like that. It's just, you know, if you put your money into this thing, you're going to get more money. If you put your money into this thing, you're going to lose it. And if you borrow money for this thing, (laughs) that's depreciating, like you're going to lose that. So I think that would probably be the biggest thing that I would talk about from the beginning. Yeah, you're right. It certainly is not complicated, but it's an issue of familiarity, right? Like people don't even have even the barest comprehension of, of what you just said, right? Like 90% (laughs) of the public, what, what is a depreciating asset? They have no clue. What's a 401k? What's the distinction between a Roth IRA? Like to me, it's criminal that we don't teach this to kids who are, like you said, a 16 year old kid is making a decision to go to college and potentially incurring a quarter of a million dollars worth of educational (laughs) debt, right? Like that's insane that we, that we let people make decisions when they don't have any comprehension of it. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, in Texas, at least the standardized testing is just really intense and it's eased off in the last couple of years. But I mean, there is such a focus on, on higher level math and that's great. I mean, we need that for our society, but since I have graduated from high school, I have used so much more money than algebra. And I think every single person that is alive in this country has used more money on a daily basis than they do upper level math techniques or, you know, uh, strategies so to me, it's confusing why we don't teach that. And it's, uh, I've never been able to get a good answer because I've talked to administration people about it and, uh, I've never gotten a good answer for why don't we talk about this very simple math related thing that everybody has to use. You haven't found the man that's trying to secretly keep it <laughs> hidden from all these people. Everybody seems to be, no, it sounds like a good idea, but then just nothing happens with it. Right? Yeah. I mean, in my exit interview with my principal, when I told him what I was doing, He's like, that sounds cool, but you sound like you're kind of crazy. And I was like, well, uh, <laughs> well, you're not wrong, <laughs> yeah. but I still think this is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he, you know, him and I talked about it. He's like, well, Texas is really trying to put some curriculum in. But he even said, you know, we can't get like we can't bring Dave Ramsey in here and do the Financial Peace University because of the religious element. And that's something, you know, when I talk about this a lot, this specific subject, I get a lot of Dave Ramsey fans that are like, well, Dave Ramsey stuff and school districts a lot of them are really trying to avoid making things sway in one way or the other, depending on a, a certain religion. And so there's just not a lot of good curriculum. I know you guys talked about that you were going to come up with some curriculum and there is a, there's a vacuum there. And I think that if I was going to sell that kind of curriculum to a school, I would come in and say, look, this is non-religious. This is not biased in any way. We just want to help kids out. And I think that you would have massive success with that. I think there is a very narrow lane where common ground can be found on all sides of the spectrum. And, and I, I love that you highlighted that. I mean, just take, let's just let's just have a thought experiment here. Let's just imagine that we were actually able to teach kids budgeting, student loans, time value of money, assets versus liabilities, compound interest, investment vehicles, consumer debt, entrepreneurship and taxes. Let's say that that was somehow able to be communicated and distilled into something that kids could absorb and incorporate into their life before they're 60 to $70,000 behind their student loan debt. How does the world change? I mean, 
Think of the opportunity when you're starting life 18 years old with a fresh slate. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've thought about that a lot. I think it's hard to, to kind of predict like, you know, how the economy would change and, and if people were more educated. But I think there would be a lot less predatory lending. I think there would be a lot less, you know, consumer debt, just random spending. I think people would obviously have higher net worths because they would understand, you know, how to actually grow their money instead of just borrowing stuff for things that, you know, <laughs> you might as well throw your money away for. So that's important. And I think the cool thing about it is like everybody thinks that you have to, you know, create content for kids that, you know, like they think money's boring, but all you have to do, what I found, if you're trying to introduce this kind of content to kids, all you have to do is say, Hey, do you want to be rich? And every single kid, like it doesn't matter how old they are. Every kid understands the concept of wealth uh, versus not having wealth. And if you asked us you know, an auditorium full of kids, Hey, do you guys want to be rich? And they would all raise their hands and you say, okay, listen, to everything I say. And they would. And it's, it's really not that complex <laughs> to get kids to care about that kind of stuff. That's really neat. I love that. That's a great takeaway for any of the teachers out there who are listening to this, who are thinking about implementing some type of financial education in their classroom. Like you have to realize the strategy. And we actually talked, Jonathan, before you alluded to like how I have some luck seemingly introducing phi to people in my real life. And I, I try to meet people where they are, like try mm -hmm. to find that strategy that will actually relate to them. And Bobby just gave a really good one for kids, which is, hey, you know, you're not saying these words out loud, but hey, maybe personal finance is boring, but man, do you want to be rich? Just listen to these five things. Like that is a cool strategy, Bobby. That's very impressive. Well, I think, you know, the reason that I thought that that worked for me in the, in the limited capacity that I did it you know, kids, when they're, before they've graduated, they haven't been beaten down by the world yet. You know, they're still in that mode of like, I can be whatever I want. I can do anything, which is cool. That's a good place for everybody. I wish we could all be like that all the time. But the reality is once people get through college and, and they, you know, they get through their twenties, like they start to limit themselves on what they think they can do because society has kind of told them like, Hey, you can't, you're not going to be rich. Like you're just going to be, you know, this for the rest of your life. And kids don't have that. And so you know, personal finance isn't boring to them if the end goal is, hey, you can drive a nice car and you can have cool vacations and you can do all this stuff if you listen to this information. Because, I mean, they, you know, if we can teach kids algebra and calculus, I mean, that's boring as hell in my opinion, too. So, like, if we can teach them that stuff. Why can't we teach them something that's actually going to help them in the long run? Bobby, did you ever move forward with uh, teaching any seminars? I know you said something like on your website, the original idea behind Millennial Money Man was to teach <laughs> seminars in schools, but it fell by the wayside. Like, did you ever move forward at all? Or was it just once you left your job, it was, you know, full speed ahead with the website? Well, yeah. So the, the idea behind Millennial Money Man in the beginning was it was going to be like a traveling seminar thing. And I had actually worked it out with my principal in that exit interview. I was like, hey, I want to come back and I want, you know, I'm going to charge I don't even know what I said, like 50 bucks per kid, you know, and I'm going to do these financial seminars. And he, he was totally cool with it. Like we were going to do it. And then for whatever reason, millennial money man started taking off. And I just, I put that on the back burner, but my plan now is, you know, I think ultimately I'm going to come back to do that, but I'm going to build my business first <laughs> and, uh, and try to make as much money as I can. And then kind of come back and do it as more of like a philanthropy project. But it, there's there's so much need for that. And I think if somebody could fill that role, it, I mean, it would be so huge. And, and I think it's something I'd like to do. But yeah, I just it fell by the wayside when William Man, Money Man started getting bigger and, and I had to put more time there. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And you kind of alluded to the fact that we have a project going on like that. We, and and this is to anyone in the audience, if you're a teacher at the K through 12 level or at the university level, we have groups of teachers and professors actually working on an FI and personal finance curriculum. So if you're interested in that, reach out to us at feedback at choosefi.com and we can get you in touch with those groups. But yeah, Bobby, we'd love to work with you down the road. So that would be, that would be fun. It's a big focus of mine personally, because I think this this education is so important. And yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that it's, it's something you're passionate about as well. Yeah. I'd love to do that in the future. So just let me know. <laughs> cool. Cool. And Hey, so just going back, you walked in and you quit your job when your website was made $3. Like, <laughs> yeah. okay, this is, you know, I I'd love to pivot the conversation to talking about side hustles and building a business. Like how on this earth did you do that? Like, how did you feel confident enough that this was going to work out? Was it an issue of your wife was making money and you were saving so much that you had some, some safety net there? Like, you know, talk me through the interplay of that and just like what your thought process was when you walk in and leave a very comfortable job for a site that's made $3. Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting how that played out. So after I paid off the student loan debt, my wife and I had kept our money separate. She actually saved up for our wedding while I was paying off the student loan debt. You know, I paid off the loans. And then after that, we just, we kept our lifestyle the same for a couple, uh, it was maybe a year and a half after that. And we just started saving up money. And I think we, I don't know if we combined it at that point, but we, we started saving up money. So the way that the whole conversation went with the, the quitting the job thing was I sat down one day in my car at this point, I was like, I knew I needed to start a business of some sort, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I got my phone calculator out and I started adding up all of the, the money that we had. And we had just about a year's worth of my salary. And so I was like, okay, if I can, if we can do this for like another year and save up a lot more money, then once we have a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to quit my job. And I actually texted that sitting in the parking lot outside of my school. I texted that to my friend, Mike. And I was like, okay, man, one more year, I'm going to do it. And he texted back pretty quickly. And was like, you know, in the grand scheme of life, there's not a lot of difference between $50,000 and a hundred thousand dollars. And he was like, you need to do it now. So I thought about it, I slept on it and I went in the next day and, and I uh, <laughs> went into my boss's office and I just told him like, Hey, I'm going to quit for millennial money, man. And it, it totally caught him off guard. It honestly caught me off guard too, because I didn't, you know, I, that was not the intention. That wasn't the plan, but I just, you know, I just felt like I needed to jump on the opportunity. And then, uh, and actually that night, sorry, I skipped the part where I had to talk to my wife about it. Cause <laughs> that's obviously pretty important. Minor detail, right? Yeah. Minor detail. But the cool thing about that was, you know, she had seen how, how passionate I was about the blog and all that stuff. And I told her, I was like, her name's Coral. And I was like, hey, Coral, like, I think I can do this. I was like, I don't know how. And like, I don't know how I can make money, but I, I believe in it. I was like, do you think we can make this work? And she didn't even skip a beat. She was just like, sure. Like, if you want to do that, we'll make it work. So that gave me the, <laughs> she basically gave me the green light on that. And, and so then the next day I did quit. And then what I like to tell people, because it always sounds like a really cool story, like it's like, oh man, that's so ballsy. He went in there and, and quit. The night after that, I woke up at probably three or four in the morning and my heart felt like it was about to explode out of my chest. Like I, I felt like I was dying. I went into the bathroom. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's so, it's totally. And I went into the bathroom and I, I just looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, oh my God, am I dying? Like what is happening? it probably took another half hour for it to like calm down. I mean, my heart was beating out of my chest. And so I, the next morning I talked to some people about it and they were like, Oh dude, you had a panic attack. And I was like, Oh, like I never had, 
I have never had anxiety in my life. I've never had a panic attack. Like I've never had any of those kind of issues. And people don't realize how, how strong the safety net of a paycheck is until you, you fully realize that like, crap, I don't have any money. I'm not going to have any money coming in. Like, how am I going to survive? And so it was, it was terrifying (laughs) for that first night. You know, fortunately that hasn't happened since, but I always try to add that part into the story because I, I've had people that have seen my story and, and have emailed me and said, Hey, like I saw your story. I've been so inspired by it. I I quit my job to run my website. (laughs) And it's just like, Oh God, no. (laughs) And so I've tried to be really responsible. I feel like it's irresponsible if I don't add in the the panic attack and like sheer terror part of it the day after I quit. I love that entire take on this. And I think actually this would be a great place for us to actually go back and tie a thread to what we were talking about earlier about how essential is college. And and it's not to relitigate that, but rather to point out the obvious that when you're focused on achieving a level of personal finance, achieving some level of financial independence, it's just a function of the math. And so instead of trying to figure out the absolute perfect job for yourself, when you're at your most fragile point in your life, 16 to 18 years old, and everybody's telling you, you have to get to school to get this one degree because that's the only job that you can be successful doing. Maybe it's worth your time to take some of the pressure off and realize that there are a million different ways to tackle this personal finance game and you might be better off pursuing something that actually makes you happy and then figure out how the math works behind that. And so what I love about this is it gives us a way to talk about business. What I'd love for you to do, Bobby, is maybe just take a couple minutes and talk to us. Someone decides they're going to pursue a side hustle business or passion project. It's day one. They haven't made a dollar or maybe they've made $3. What's their next step? Well, I think, uh, I mean, first we probably should back up just even choosing the side hustle because that's what I see the most indecision on is like, what, you know, what should I do? And it's, it goes back to what you said, like everybody wants to, you know, have the perfect job or the perfect business. I think the interesting thing about side hustles is that they can be stupidly simple and they can become wildly successful. You know, like one of that I always try to tell people is like, you can go out and there are people all around my neighborhood that do this. If somebody puts out a piece of furniture that looks like trash, somebody can pick it up and go paint it with like chalk paint or something and flip it and make a hundred dollars. And even my, my mother-in-law who doesn't know anything about the internet, doesn't know anything about, you know, really side hustling or, or anything like that. She goes and does that and she makes several hundred dollars a month just flipping furniture. And so I think that a side hustle, it doesn't have to be like the perfect glamorous, you know, start a blog and become a millionaire or, uh, you know, whatever, like, you know, some kind of cool startup. It can be something really, really simple that you can scale. And then through the process, like, you know, businesses most often don't look how you intended them to look when you start. So like for me, I thought the millennial money man was going to be this rolling seminar thing and it turned into a blog. (laughs) So you can start the furniture flipping thing. And then maybe all of a sudden it turns into like, now you've got a storage unit and you're, you're flipping stuff out of the storage unit. And then all of a sudden you've got a storefront and then you've got an online store. Like everything is scalable with the internet. And so I think that that would be where I would start. Don't overthink the actual side hustle. Just get started doing something and then try to scale it. There's so many different side hustles and and it's not really, I don't think this would be the place for us to talk about every single side hustle that we've ever encountered. People have literally written books. There's entire websites dedicated to this. Certainly we have people in our audience that have made the decision to start documenting their story via a blog. 
And since you have been wildly successful with this over the past couple of years, do you have any specific advice to someone that's trying to figure out how to break through the noise and how to really start getting some traction with their new internet-based business or blog? Yeah, well, blogging's a, <laughs> blogging is a, a very complex and slow, ultra-slow business model. You know, I think that you shouldn't start a blog unless you're ready to, to click publish for like a year without seeing a dime ever roll in. And so a lot of people that I see, like, they're like, how can I make money quickly with my blog? And the, and the sad answer is like, you can't. But the cool thing about it is that you can make money with related services. So the way that I actually started making money, because I quit my job, obviously had no income, and I didn't realize how slow the blogging business model was. I started doing marketing services for local companies. There's local businesses all over the place that have blogs on their website that are probably crappy because nobody actually pays attention or knows how to write content. And so if you blog for like three to six months and you don't even have to have like wild success, you can use your blog as a portfolio to go out and get local marketing clients. So that's what I did. And I actually, the guy that did my wife's engagement ring, I showed him my blog and that turned into like a freelance writing gig, which turned into managing all of his marketing. And so I was able to do that as kind of a side hustle while I grew millennial money, man. So I think whatever you're doing, you always have to look on any online based business in the beginning. If you're trying to monetize it quickly, it's not about like, you know, coming up with like this prophetic content. It's more getting the nuts and bolts down and then using that for local businesses to try to uh, help them with their marketing game. I loved how you framed that. And in particular, the fact that you latched onto just by the fact that you created a blog, you developed a skill set that are in high demand. It's in very high demand. We just started this conversation by basically saying that almost any business, if it's going to be scalable, will require the internet. And so you making the decision to create a blog forced you to, to develop an, a very high demand skill set, which you then took that entrepreneurial bent and marketed to your local community. That is a natural pivot that buys you time to grow your slow business, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to plug myself here. I do have a course coming out for that, the Make Money Marketing course. That's going to drop probably in late December or January. And it's going to be just that, like how to use your blog as a portfolio and show it to local businesses, target local businesses that need your help. Because there are so many bloggers out there that are trying really, really hard to make it, but they're not making any money. And I think that this is the fastest monetization strategy. It's faster than affiliate income or sponsored posts or any of that. It requires more work. But if you really want to make money online, that's the game, the local marketing thing. Because if you run a blog, you have to think you run social media, uh, you manage email campaigns, you manage just online presence in general, website uh, design, everything. And that's all for all of these small business owners out there. They all need that. And uh, they just they just don't know how to do it themselves. And so I think that that is easily the fastest way to monetize a blog. That's a great point, Bobby. I love that. That reminds me of the author Scott Adams and his talent stack, as he calls it, which is basically accumulating all these different skills that you might not be world class at it. You know, you personally, Bobby, might not be world class at, at marketing for local businesses. But if you're in the top 10 percent and you're in right. the top 10 of creating WordPress sites and understanding social media and writing and all these different things you are a very, very valuable asset for local businesses, even for national level businesses potentially, but, but start locally, right? Like that's a cool little hack because in all likelihood in your, or in wherever someone in the audience listening to this is in your little city or town, like there's probably not someone with that set of skills. So it's important to keep your mind open. And like you said, you thought millennial money man was going to be teaching seminars about 
personal finance to kids. Here you are with its ultra successful blog and courses on how to create, you know, marketing for local businesses. Like that's, that is amazing, right? Like yeah. how cool is that pivot? And it was just because you kept an open mind. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a very tiny rant here for a second, but it's one of the things that I've come across a lot from people that start a blog or, or try to start an online business. Like there is this, this vibe out there right now in the, in the blogging community, anything that that's not an efficient way to make money is a waste of time. And that's something I've seen a lot is like only go after, you know, certain ROI that's easier to get than other stuff. And, and I disagree with that because, you know, affiliate income, I make, I make great affiliate income, but I wouldn't make affiliate income if I hadn't learned how to do all of the sales from the marketing and been able to take that money and put it back in my business. So I think there's too many bloggers that like see these successful bloggers like me and they're like, oh, they're making 50, 60 K a year in affiliate income. Like I'm only going to do things to try to get affiliate income when it's like, no, no, no. I, I went and did like the, the legwork and, and got clients and had to deal with, with clients, which is hard. <laughs> and I put in that work. And so I think you have to be realistic with yourself about your business. Like you're not going to go viral and just start making millions of dollars with the website. There's a lot of people out there that are probably saying the same thing. So you're going to have to find other ways to make money rather than just like, you know, magic affiliate money that comes in. Sorry, just a little rant. <laughs> no, that's a great rant. And and I agree with that completely. I mean, when I started my first site, which was richmondsavers.com, I wound up helping people one-on-one -on -one with travel rewards. I was a CPA at that point. I'm a, you know, manager at a Fortune 500 level company like and there I am at my lunch hour on the phone with someone for a half hour talking about travel rewards because I knew I could make some money on the back end if they use my affiliate links to sign up for credit cards. While it sounds crazy to me now, that was a hybrid business that I came up with that bridged the real world and the online world. And I looked at it almost as a customer, even though they weren't paying me. And that was just like this little idea that I had from basically being an accountant and look again, looking at it, not just as an online business, but how can I make this a hybrid business? I was never going to be Mr. Money Mustache getting millions of visitors at dopey little richmondsavers.com, right? But like, right. how could I make that something that made a little bit of money and was worth my time? And that was my thought. And, and it did work out well. And then I was able to scale it to your point, like look for that foot in the door and then find a way to scale it. Right. Like I was able to then pivot and create an online course that was able to do it much more efficiently. And I didn't have to spend a half hour of my time with one on one with a person. Right. So I think that is a brilliant idea for the audience out there is like, look at where you can add value and don't just follow the herd. Like if the top SEO and Internet marketers are saying you need to get a certain return on investment, like. Okay, that's fine for them because they're probably making millions of dollars. But most blogs make very little money at the beginning and maybe make very little money, period. But if you can come up with that little pivot, then maybe you can turn it into something successful like I did or like Bobby did. I think that's a pretty cool takeaway. Yeah, and to just even just to simplify, like if somebody's looking at, at a blog, like if you want to know the, the long game of how to make a million dollars a year, you start your blog. You write stuff you're really passionate about, get a loyal following. doesn't have to be huge. Then figure out a way, a cool way to make money that nobody else is doing or some other people are doing, but not a lot. Then document it for a couple of months, maybe a year, and then create a course on it and sell it to the people that you built trust with. Like that's how you take your blog from like nothing to a million dollars a year in like four years. <laughs> um, it, like the online course thing 
like for me, I've got two online courses coming out in January. I truly believe just because of the interest that I have built up in this, because I've been building trust with my readers for so long, I think that I'm going to gross over $500,000 with my blog next year. That's the game. Like figure out a way to make money, document it, show people you're having success, and then create a course and teach other people how to do it. Awesome. Well, normally that would wrap up the interview, but on this show, we want to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Yes. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right. That was epic, by the way. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that one was fun. We put that together uh, way back in the day early on, but we knew we wanted this epic music score that's just so over the top to go right along with this. That is perfect. I was trying really hard. Like I was laughing, but I was trying to like get away from the mic because it was, it was just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you like it. All right, Bobby. Question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Uh, Making Sense of Sense from Michelle Schroeder-Gardner. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm pretty sure that back in the day when I started my very first website, she got my affiliate commission on that with her Bluehost tutorial. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was her. She's just so good at Pinterest marketing. Yeah, she's probably responsible for, I'd say, like 90% of the new bloggers out there right now in the personal finance space. The reason I like her site so much, one, she's a good friend of mine. I've gotten to, to kind of know her over the past, I don't know, maybe two years. And she's always been so helpful She's very, very genuine and authentic and just a very nice person. And so I think that comes through in, in a lot of things. Like she teaches people how to make affiliate income. Uh, she teaches people how to, how to blog and I think do it the right way without being shady and doing stuff that you probably shouldn't do. Yeah, that's very cool. I've, I've known Michelle off and on via email for the last couple of years and uh, just a really nice, genuine person. And yeah, she's actually going to be on the podcast in the next couple of months. So that should be good. Cool. All right. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now, this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's. You know, it's actually I hate to pick my own, but it is my favorite one. There's one on the website under popular posts on the sidebar, and it's the, it's called The Real Reason I Live Debt Free. And I wrote that one after my wife's father died. He actually when we were living with her parents and renting from them, he was battling a disease called inclusion body myositis. And it's very similar to muscular dystrophy. He passed away while my wife and I were actually on vacation in Jamaica and it was like this, this terrible experience and everything, but we got back and I kind of reflected on it and I had learned a lot about personal finance from him and just a lot about life in general. I wrote this thing. It's not super long, but it's, I think it's the best thing I've ever written. It's the piece of content that I'm, I'm the most proud of in my blogging career so far. I hate that I had to write it, but it's, it's also, I think pretty, pretty powerful and it's, it's very emotional. So that's my favorite one. All right. So it's in the sidebar and we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. All right. Question number three, your favorite life hack. Okay. <laughs> you guys send me these questions and I, this took me the longest time to figure that one out, but I've realized since we just built this new house, I've replaced every single light bulb with an led light bulb and you can buy them at dollar general. They're way cheaper than you can buy them anywhere else. You can get and led light bulbs at dollar general. Yes. And they're legit too. They're like GE, like they're, they're good light bulbs. They're kind of back in like the the automotive section almost like they're in the back of the store, but dollar general and like the dollar, dollar tree and dollar stores, they have led light bulbs. So I replaced every single light bulb in the house. And last month 
our energy bill was 55, it was $55 for a 2,600 square foot house. Oh, I am going to Dollar General. That's amazing. I've been like slowly, I've been slowly waiting until each light individually went dead before I changed them over. And then I think I was dropping probably even using Costco, which I always assume has the best price. I was probably still spending, I don't know up to eight, oh, I don't no, know, six no. to seven dollars per light, something like that. Is that no, it? No, no, you can get like a two pack for like five bucks. So yeah, you need to, you need to go and check that out. And I, I don't want to guarantee cause I don't know what everybody's energy rates are and all that kind of stuff, but you will see a drastic difference that I think will pay for the cost of the light bulbs within like a couple months. See, this is why we put the question in here, Brad is to change <laughs> lives. That's great. I love it. <laughs> all right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Oh, this, that's an easy one. So when I quit my job, I had $50,000 saved up and I, I held that as cash for I think two years because I was so terrified to invest it and lose it <laughs> that I just let it sit there. And, you know, I'm sure everybody in the audience is like, oh, because I know your audience is, is very index fund happy. That was a huge mistake. But also at the same time, I'm going to qualify it by saying that it gave me kind of the confidence knowing I had cash sitting there that I could get very quickly to be able to go out and take some risk with my business. And it also just helped me sleep better at night. So it was kind of a, a quality of life thing. But if I could go back, I would have put that into either a high interest savings account or uh, just bought a ton of index funds. You can just call it an emergency fund and get a free pass. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It, was a, it was a large emergency fund. There you go. But there's definitely something to that. If that helped you sleep better at night, then it's not necessarily a terrible decision. I know, obviously, the the math optimizers out there would say <laughs> it was a bad decision, right? And think about how much it would have earned X, Y, and Z. Right. But if that gave you peace of mind and helped you sleep at night, all right, that's not so bad. It could be a lot worse, you know? Well, yeah, and I think I think the math optimizers, like, one, yes, they're right, especially when you're looking at it in hindsight, like, well, the market did this. But if you haven't ever taken a leap of faith and quit your job for something that doesn't make any money, which most people haven't, and that's smart, like every day is kind of a little bit scary. <laughs> so a lot of business is a mind game and a kind of a mindset game. If you can put yourself in a positive mindset and put yourself in a place to where you're comfortable taking risk with your business, then it's going to grow really fast. And so I think that that was the way that I did it. So it ultimately worked out, but yes, like mathematically, not, not smart. Yeah. I like that explanation. That's very good. All right, Bobby, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Yeah, I would definitely tell myself, I would try to convince myself that I was an entrepreneur a lot earlier because I felt like as I was getting into the high school band director thing, it was something that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And I'm not like super happy with it. Like in school, I had bad grades. I was not a model student. And I'm looking back on it now, I just realized it's because like I was destined to be an entrepreneur and just work for myself. And I wish either, you know, I could go back and tell myself that, or somebody had sat me down when I was like 15 and said like, Hey, you know, the traditional path is not going to be right for you. Because you you suck at school and you probably need to go off and do your own thing. So that's what I would tell myself. I love that. And I can totally identify with what you're saying. I think it's probably, I think if you were to reflect on that further though, the decisions you made up to this point gave you your story, which is giving you the level of success that you're having today. So it might've been, it might've been good advice, but 
you would not be who you are now without those experiences. And I think the the actionable key there for the audience, you know, this is one of those questions that it's, what advice would you give your younger self? And I think it's very useful, especially when you're talking about mentoring the next generation to think about that. But at the same time, don't take that with regret. I mean, there's in actuality, the decisions you made made you who you are now. And in many cases, that's giving you the ability to thrive. So uh, instead of doing that, say, what can I learn from this and how can I, you know, direct my life into a future that I can get excited about. All right, man. Well, we also have a bonus question. Uh, your favorite purchase made on amazon.com uh, within the last year. I had to rack my brain on this one and I actually went back through, I couldn't remember what I had bought on Amazon and what I hadn't. So I went back and I don't know if you know this, you can go back to like 2010 and see what you bought on Amazon. It's like really fascinating to go back and like, wow, why did, why in the world did I buy that thing seven years ago? But I think probably the most useful thing the thing I got the most enjoyment was we bought some snorkeling gear. We went to my wife and I went to Aruba uh, probably four or five months ago, and we bought some really sweet snorkeling gear that was pretty cheap. So that would probably be the best one. Nice. So, Bobby, we have probably 20 to 50 bloggers that have started since listening to Choose FI and many other people that are considering starting an online business. And I'm sure that many of them are going to want to reach out to you, find out a little bit more about your story, and maybe read some of the content that you've been producing over the last several years. What's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, Well, they can always email me, bobby at millennialmoneyman.com. Or if they just want to hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, I'm pretty active. So I I answer everything. I don't have somebody answering for me like a lot of bloggers do. So uh, you can reach me at genymoneyman, G-E-N-Y moneyman on all of my social media accounts. So thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. This has been absolutely fantastic. I know it's been valuable for me. I think our audience is really going to benefit from this. We just finished talking to Todd Tresseter about the value of the business asset class. And I know we're going to be very intentional next year talking about the income strategy. So this really was a conversation that should help open up the door for that to continue into 2018. Uh, to our audience, I hope you got value from this. If you did, definitely reach out to Bobby over at Millennial Money Man. And if you would like to support us and what we're doing here at ChooseFI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC, P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.